0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show on NPR News, and I'm glad you're listening. Stand in the Sistine Chapel and gaze skyward to Michelangelo's depiction of God. He, and yes, most religious art depicts God as a man, is white-bearded and old, reclining amid a band of angels. His finger is outstretched as he infuses Adam with the spark of life. Now, regard one of the more than 450 black Madonnas that exist around the world. Powerful, ancient, and artistic representations of the sacred and the divine. Joan of Arc prayed before the black Madonna of Moulin. At the black Madonna of Vichy, thousands of people who were afflicted with illness came to be comforted. Theologian and scholar Christina Cleveland embarked on a pilgrimage to see some of Europe's black Madonnas to reexamine why we accept this white male image of God and how constricting and corrosive that has been to seeing the divine in everyone. She writes in her new book, imagination is theology. We can only believe what we can imagine and our cultural landscape hasn't given us many tools to imagine a non-white, non-male God. Christina Cleveland is the founder of the Center for Justice and Renewal. She's a former professor at Duke's Divinity School, and her new book is titled God is a Black Woman. Christina, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you.
1: It's a joy to be here.
0: I thought about that statement that imagination is theology, and I realized how powerfully our theological imaginations have been shaped by the men who told the stories and created the art that portrays God in one way. And you can see that even as a theologian, you struggle to move beyond that image yourself. So how did you begin
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, a big turning point for me was uh, about ten years ago when Trayvon Martin was killed, and um, just hearing the national conversation um, and wondering why doesn't any why, why do so few people see this little black boy as sacred, as something to be cared for, as something to be protected at all costs. And so I, my, my imagination started looking and kind of interrogating um, is does this have something to do with the fact that we associate whiteness with goodness and morality and divinity because of the white Christ and how powerful that um, image is, um, is in particular the US context. And so it started there really, really questioning. Um, the The whiteness of Christ, and then later on, starting to look at the gender of Christ or the gender of God in our culture
0: you know part of and, and you make this clear in your book, part of the reason that this image of God as an all powerful white, old sage like man is imprinted on our imaginations is because so much of the representation has has given us that image. I know it's not complete, at, which is what your book is about, but this is something that people who grow up in religious communities become aware of at a very early age, and you did too, right? hmm mm-hmm. Yeah, even though,
1: I spent about half of my time in Black religious communities. That image is still there. And then what mm-hmm. that image represents, how it sort of constricts our way of even understanding how we relate to each other and how we might relate to divine or sacred things in our world. Um, and so, you know, I really do think that our, our theological imaginations are are really constricted by this image because it says a lot about top-down authority and it says a lot about whether we can trust the body or not and um, or wisdom that comes from the body. And so you don't have to be in a white space to encounter the problem of white male God.
0: Do you, do you think of what you're writing about and what you've been investigating for the last years as a kind of, I guess subversive um, idea and some subversive questions that you were raising because you are coming, you are bumping right up against, you know, the, as you said, the hierarchical views that have existed for millennia about God and how religious communities are going to see God.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's subversive. It's rebellious. It's witchy, depending on who you talk to. Um, you know, uh-huh. it's, it's um, you know, so much of what we're taught in the US, not just in religious and spiritual spaces, but even in school, right? Or in, in our, in our um, the way that we poli- we are policed in this country is, you know, there is an authority and it's not you. And you need mm-hmm. to do whatever you need to do in order to stay in good graces with that authority. And so the entire locus of our authority is outside of ourselves and individual humans are invited into the conversation about what do we call sacred? What do we call profane? And so anyone who steps outside of that, um, this hierarchical structure and says, wait, I have a question or I disagree or um, black lives do matter, even though that's not what our policing system suggests in terms of statistics, um, Oftentimes, those folks are called either rebellious. That's often the term that's applied to women who do that, um, or untrustworthy. Or you know, sometimes if it's black and brown people, it's oh, you're just angry, and you're just you're you're a disruptor. Um, and so th- there's so much moral policing around how we even engage these questions. And for me, that that was a huge um, impediment. Because I wanted to be a good girl, both in terms of my Christian upbringing, but also as a black woman in the world, it's hard to go far if you're seen as a problem. And so you stay yeah. in your lane. I, mm-hmm.
0: I think um, I think this is a good moment then, since we've agreed on rebellious and subversiveness and these ideas and all the best kinds of ways, um, <laughs> to understand a little more about your most formative years in the church that you were brought up in. Your father was raised in a Pentecostal church and mm-hmm. he learned that perfectionism was the way that you served God most deeply. How would you describe the church community in relation to that that you were raised in? How many of those values were carried through into the, the church community that you knew as a child?
1: They were identical as far as I could tell. You know, I spent a good chunk of time in my, in my, the, the church community of my dad's origins and roots. And then also the, some of the spaces that we were brought into, which were, um, more white or multiracial spaces. And in both spaces, I felt, um, my, my, my understanding was faithfulness means perfection and complete adherence to the morality that has been passed down to you. No exception. That's what it means to be a good, faithful human.
0: And who would be judging y- your your level of perfectionism within the, the church community at large, not within your household? But yeah, who decided yeah. so
1: that? So teachers, teachers, pastors, so anyone who has authority in that space, but they're essentially speaking for God. And so it's not a far leap for you to think, oh, if this person is not is displeased with me then god is also displeased with me because in the context in which i um often worked there was um often biblical interpretation that was attached to the rules <laughs> to kind of add that moral heft to them um, to the rules and then also there were people who claimed to speak for god too and so they could just say i this is god this is god speaking through me to you
0: you know I, i'm curious about how women in that church community alone and among themselves saw that kind of moral judgment that came down from the teachers, the leaders of the church. Were you privy to, you know, what women would say among themselves when they weren't being overheard?
1: As I got older, yes. Some of some of the earlier experiences when I was a kid, um, um, I didn't, I didn't know to ask, but as I got older, I would often ask women, are, are you okay with the fact that, you know, maybe you aren't able to preach in this context, or are you okay with the fact that at that sermon, at the, at this wedding sermon, this, this bride was instructed to obey her husband as part of the wedding sermon and the vast majority of the women in those spaces expressed no dissonance to me. Yes. That's what the Bible says. That's the best way to go.
0: And what do you think your mother thought about that?
1: I more or less would agree. I think she would agree. You know I think um, a hierarchical spirituality makes a lot of sense to her and um, reduces um, ambiguity in her life, and so that's that's comforting.
0: You write about how your parents imposed what you describe as extreme piety and and that led to an abusive fasting regime and they connected that with this idea of being and leading a good christian life will you i understand it having read you know the the memoir your memoir but from the outside looking in this is a this is a, i think a hard concept to grasp mm-hmm. um parents mm-hmm. to children so how would you describe absolutely. the Absolutely.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think my parents, on the one hand, really understood the way our world works, and they, under- they understood that this world is not hostile to little black girl bodies. Uh, sorry, not, n- is hostile to little black mm. girl bodies. They understood that nurturing. it was
0: hostile. They understood
1: yeah. that, yeah, absolutely. Um, and they understood that I had a lot, um, I had an uphill battle. Um, both in terms of achieving dignity, but then also achieving um, some 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 life that might correspond to the American dream, you know opportunities, including relational opportunities. and I think they did what a lot of parents do, which is sort of act out of their fear. I don't think they had the resources to connect with um, to a sense of abundance um, bec- in part because of their theology, but I think they they wanted me to have a good life. And according to their life, that meant heterosexual marriage. And according to their theology, heterosexual marriage is a gift from God if you're pious enough, if you're good enough. And so, um, you know, they, they wanted us to start fasting and praying when I was five years old so that we would please God enough to get that good heterosexual marriage and so you know i think their intentions were like were so good in the sense that they just wanted the best for me of course the pathway was problematic and i called it abusive in the text and um, i think of it as abusive now but when you when you when you're essentially chained to this concept of a punitive distant confusing god Mm. um it makes sense for you to jump through all the hoops that you think you need to jump through in order to please this God who frankly doesn't want to find you pleasing. (laughs) And that's not inherent to the relationship.
0: You know, it's interesting. You, as you started that answer, you used the words, the word abundance. And you Mm -hmm. said that your parents did not really have the resources. Are you saying that they didn't really have the income? To feel that anything they needed was kind of at their was at their fingertips if they needed it, and mm-hmm. the, how how did they see that? Because I think of the contrast of whatever your parents, you know, perception of abundance was with the deprivation that really infused a lot of these ideas about how to be a good Christian.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think there's a reason why um, black and brown, particularly black and brown socioecon- socioeconomically op- um, oppressed folks are drawn to a prosperity gospel, right? If I'm pious enough, if I'm good enough, if I just have enough faith, then God will give me what I need. Well, that starts from a place of scarcity. You're going to be more attracted to that idea as a way to control your environment if you actually have real need, you know? And so when I say they didn't have the resources, I would say both in terms of finances and just the um, the spaciousness that comes with having financial resources, but also they didn't have the spiritual resources because of how much um, experiencing physical resource scarcity in our world sets people up to really connect with a prosperity gospel, like an idea that if I'm just good enough, I can change my situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, this idea, Kate Bowler has written a lot about the prosperity gospel. Uh, Do you know, are you familiar with her work? I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. So she, you know, she kind of interrogates this idea that there will never, you know, if, if something is not going right in your world, particularly from a, from a resources point of view, you don't have the income you want. You're needy in some way. I mean, the the teaching is you don't have a solid enough faith and you aren't working hard enough and you are lacking in some ways, and your own personal lacking is the reason that your life is lacking in some ways. do, do I have do I have special, that, that connection yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so this is something that your parents believed and that was taught in in the church that you grew up in. Is that right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and that's why my parents believed that, you know, uh, we had to not show any lack in order to get a good marriage. We had to be pious enough. We had to show enough faith. And that's, that was a big reason or a big, um, yeah, a big reason behind their, their desire to have us fasting and praying. They, I think they were dealing with some marital issues in their young marriage, which I would chalk up to trauma, like sort of generational trauma within black communities. Um, but they, their understanding was we didn't pray enough before we got married. And that's why we're dealing with these marital challenges. And they didn't want that for us. And so they said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray. (laughs) And that way, when you do get married 20, 30 years from now, I mean, I was five years old when this began, you won't deal with the problems that we have. Um, And so one of the things I talk about in the book is how much this white male um, iteration of God, this white male idol that we have of the divine hates our need and despises our need. And that's part of the reason why showing up with any lack is not acceptable and will actually be met with punishment.
0: You know, what's so puzzling about that is that scriptures and sacred texts in, all, in many different faiths portray the purpose of Jesus Christ the opposite, that Christ was there for the needy. So it's really hard to square this idea that if you are in need, you've done something wrong, and yet the belief in, in Christ's being and purpose seems to speak to the opposite of that. So how, how was that reconciled? Absolutely. Well, I think there's a difference between the Jesus in
1: sacred text and the Jesus in America's spiritual and theological imagination, that, <laughs> th- that sure. second <laughs> Jesus, yeah. right? That second Jesus was really significantly shaped by the plantations. And mm-hmm. so from day one, as soon as my ancestors got to this country, the enslavers had to, make, had to make sense of this conundrum that you're bringing up now. How can we possibly enslave people who literally look like our Christ? our God. And how do we make sense of our God's, our, our Christ's love language with these people <laughs> and their need? And we're going to treat them this way. And so they invented the white Christ. Oh, that's completely a figment of the white patriarchal imagination. This is not the Christ in the Bible, but they preached. And you can, you can read sermons that enslavers preached where they just completely reimagine Christ so that it supports their enslavement and abuse and trafficking of black people. And that's the god who George Washington was was introduced to and that's the god that our founders were introduced to.
0: I think it would be valuable since you're a theologian and a and you know a former professor of uh of religion at Duke's Divinity School, to describe how you knew the Christ in the Bible, in the scriptures that you're familiar with. What's the portrayal? Mm. Because, because I, I'd like to know how people who read the scriptures with the kind of knowledge and education that you did see that and how, what a great contrast that is to what you've just told us.
1: Well, the way that I view Jesus now is as a mystic and a poet, um, and someone who was not interested in lording over people. He was incredibly non-hierarchical, um, and was often in conversation with people where other people got to participate to that in that conversation um and speak into that conversation and so we, what the the jesus the historical jesus was afro-asiatic is the term that a lot of scholars use which essentially means he was he looked like a modern day arab man and um he was someone who spent the vast majority of his time both ministering to and also befriending the people who we would now identify as undocumented immigrants, as trans folks, and people who are non-gender conforming, as women, and people who have been um, labeled as problematic or um, too sexual or something like that. And so, Jesus's, most of Jesus' miracles didn't even take place amongst the average middle-class American, you know, or or his society's equivalent. And so, so much about the Jesus of the Bible was really about the needy and about the the disenfranchised and the disillusioned and what it looks like to have a good news for them, particularly in a Roman empire, you know, in in an inherently hostile nation state.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Christina Cleveland. She's the founder of the Center for Justice and Renewal. She's a former professor at Duke's Divinity School, and we're talking about her new book, God is a Black Woman, on my Friday book show. And I'm Carrie Miller. You know, I, you mentioned doubt, and I, I don't want to miss, miss this in our conversation. Can, can you talk about how doubt was regarded within your church and your family, because these are questions that all kids have, particularly if you're raised in some kind of religious tradition. You know, when we reach the ages of 10, 11, and 12, I mean, how were these questions that you were bringing up, I think, in Sunday school being regarded? As rebellious and,
1: and um, a, you know, you're being a troublemaker. I remember getting kicked out of Sunday school when I was seven because I was asking questions, (laughs) which if you're the preacher's daughter, that's not cool, (laughs) you know, but, um, I was kicked out of Sunday school when I was seven because I was, we were in, we were covering the Noah's Ark story. Um, and I was trying to make sense of how a God who supposedly loves us and for God so loved the world, um, what could possibly kill everyone with a flood, except for the few the few hundred people and animals that were included in Noah's Ark. And you know, honestly, I think the the, the young adult teacher who was in charge of us um, was not well-versed in how to deal with a question like that. And so I think they reacted, but that's the point, right? Like to be faithful means to never ask questions. And so to faithfully teach a class means to not tolerate questions. And so you start to see this pattern.
0: How open do you think most religious traditions today are to the kinds of questions that you were asking as a child and that adults still bring to their church communities? Well, I, you know,
1: research that I've read and done on the major religions, the major patriarchal religions, suggests that they're not particularly open. Um, Creative spiritual imagination is often seen as a threat in any patriarchal religion um, that where hierarchy is, is really important and valued as central to the way the religion operates.
0: You know what, what is, I understand that on one level. The other thing that is confusing about that is that with doubt comes exploration, and you would think deeper understanding. That sounds a little simplistic, but if you encourage that kind of questioning and exploration, it would seem that it demonstrates a great interest.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's certainly the logical way of looking at it. I think that within a lot of these religious and spiritual spaces, exploration is not the goal. Obedience is the goal. Hmm. And mm-hmm. controlling people is the goal. And oftentimes this is out of a place of concern, right? It's, a, but it's maybe fear-based concern, but a lot of these spiritual leaders and religious leaders, they want, they're afraid of, you know, there's, there's this relationship with this, um, fa- this father sky, God, this sort of distant white male God who's punitive. <laughs> right. And so they're mm-hmm. trying to shepherd their sheep. They want to keep them safe. And so this is, this is what they understand as the way to keep people safe is keep people obedient, control them. And then if we all just stay in our lane, then this God who's punitive will not punish us. So I think um the, the value of exploration is not, is not a driving one.
0: You know, it, it sounds like you carried these ideals of perfectionism and obedience that had been imprinted on you from the time you were a really small child into long into your years of higher education, even as you were moving in more public and, and powerful circles of theological scholarship. I, I how How long would you say you you carried this into you know, becoming an adult and pursuing the path that you pursued.
1: Yeah, into my
0: 30s. Wow. Why? Why do you think?
1: Well, I think it's because what I learned in my childhood home and what I learned in my spiritual communities of origin is just echoed in our broader society. And so even as I was, you know, going and getting Ivy League degrees and getting PhD, a PhD and moving and, you know, being in a space like Duke Divinity School, a prestigious space, um, I was also getting this message that there's one way for a Black woman to be in this space. Again, control, obedience, and adherence to the order. And I learned even as a faculty member at Duke Divinity School, there are some questions that are not tolerated especially if you're a woman and especially if you're like, black. Like what? Well, I remember one of, um, one of my colleagues um, rec- um, presenting uh, his syllabus. And so there's a whole process where if someone wants to teach a new class, they have to present their syllabus to the faculty, and then the faculty votes on whether we approve that syllabus or not. And it, it was, I can't remember it, the specifics, but I think it was mm-hmm. a class on uh, preaching the Old Testament, or something like that so a a somewhat general class and every single one of um this person's um site all of the scholars that 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 were on the syllabus were white men and so i in my first you know naive my first month there i said hey i have i actually don't want to approve the syllabus either the title of the class needs to be changed, white men preaching the Old Testament, or the syllabus needs to be a lot more diverse, especially <laughs> because Black Black theologians have written extensively. There's a whole huge tradition. <laughs> that's, And so I remember faculty members lashing out at me in response to that question.
0: Hmm.
1: One faculty member said, well, you know, um, I know you wouldn't really know much about this because your, your real background is in social psychology. So again, so like, which is just an interesting response. You're, you're showing, you're putting me in my place. Oh, you just don't know what you're talking about. Another one said, well, Augustine is on this list and Augustine's black. And I was like, <laughs> and my response was not for, according to our racial <laughs> understanding of what black is, Augustine does not count, right? So just, and it still got passed, you know, there was no, the discussion just got shot down. So I I found that there are hierarchies that this white male god infused spiritual imagination still rules outside of my home and outside of the church spaces that I was raised in.
0: I assume in the wake of that experience you were you were immediately seen and maybe branded in the minds of some of your colleagues, troublemaker. <laughs> I mean, just the mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and you probably you probably carried that that weight among some of your colleagues until you left Duke. Is that true? Certainly. Mm-hmm. It, it also, as you're ascending, as you said, as you're getting your PhD and you're ascending into. These prestigious theological educational spaces, you aren't married, and you're also on, you know, this physical roller coaster of healthy mm-hmm. eating and then non-healthy eating and healthy eating. I just I found this so interesting the way, mm. you know, some of your some of what was happening health wise was. Such a reflection of some of, of your moral turmoil of your exploration, I should say, and how tumultuous that was, w- will you just describe what this was like as as in contrast to how people perhaps saw you from the outside, you know your achievements and mm-hmm. everything
1: absolutely you know one of the one of the challenges of growing up with this spiritual imagination of a white male God who despises our need and is punitive and we just have to like uh, make sure everything always looks good on the outside is that when you're really struggling, um, it's hard to be honest with yourself, much less with your community, especially if you're um, especially if your acceptance into that community is contingent upon this perception of perfection. And so when I started fasting and praying for our future spouses, for my future spouse, um, when I was five, I learned how to starve myself really early on. And it also, um, I I probably have never really developed a, a, a legitimate bodily connection to my own hunger and satiety cues because of that. So I, even now mm-hmm. as a 41 year old, I don't know when I'm full or empty, um,
0: mm-hmm. unless
1: it's extreme, unless I'm stuffed or I'm starving. Mm-hmm. But those little, those subtle cues that you develop, um, through life, I never got to do that because we fasted and prayed most of the day on Sundays. And so I learned very quickly, you stop listening to your body, Christina, mm-hmm. because that's not, that's going to lead you astray. It's going to lead you, um, into unholiness and so i started fasting and i'm sorry i started starving and i learned how to binge through that process and really throughout my whole life and for about 30 years until my mid-30s i was in this like vicious cycle of binging and purging and over-exercising and starving myself and all in this mixed up with this idea of I'm doing all this to please this God. So I have to have a, a body that's pleasing to this God and really this God's view, view of me is similar to the men's view of me and of, of me. And so I need to please the male gaze and specifically please the white male gaze um, and because that's the white male God gaze, it's all the same. And so I had just incredible body dysmorphia. Um, I was constantly yo-yoing up and down, which is just in terms of weight, which is just so hard on your your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not able to say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm going through. Um, because I felt like my, my challenges were part of the moral failure that that I am. <laughs> and so um, it, was, it was unbelievably miserable. And, you know, times where I was so sick from overeating that I could barely function physically. Um, but I think that the, the broader issue that I've come to realize through that is similar to my young parents, because i did not have a faith because i did not have a spiritual a spirituality that could accommodate uncertainty and fear Mm -hmm. i didn't know how to hold uncertainty and fear in my life and as a black woman even as i ascended into these spaces sometimes the spaces became even scarier and alienating i was dealing with a lot of fear and uncertainty and so my go-to was to Fast and pray, right? So essentially, starve and then binge. That was my go-to to deal with fear, which is exactly what my parents taught me. As that's how we deal with fear: we fast and pray. And so, those that toxic relationship with food and piety became my go-to as an adult
0: because that's what I knew, and I had a lot of it. Yeah. Did your did your parents? You were, as I, as I've noted, unmarried which again was mm-hmm. the goal that they you know imprinted on you from a very young age did your parents with all of your academic achievements see you as a success or was the fact that you were not in you know this very traditional heterosexual marriage you know staining you as some kind of a failure in in their eyes
1: Absolutely. Especially morally and in terms of uh, human development, I was kind of like a junior varsity adult. That's, that's the you best you can married. do if you're not mm. married. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mm. matter all, you know, all these other accolades in spiritual spaces and in terms of having some sort of like moral gravitas, you'll, you'll never self-actualize until you're in that marriage. Yeah even though my parents are, are for, have a lot of formal education and value the formal education that I had, um, that was a separate issue from my actual development as a human.
0: Do you think you still find that voice kind of creeping into your mind?
1: Sometimes. You know, I think one of the, um, I mean, even one of the challenges of bringing a book like this into the world is, you know the self-criticism, the self-consciousness, the fear that I experience—is that true, or is that just part of this like white patriarchal imagination that's been put put on me and is still around? You know, like, mm-hmm. am I? Does my voice matter? You know, uh, does success equal book sales? You know, these are all things that I've been taught um, and messages that I've that have been echoed throughout society, um, and a big part of my journey towards God as a black woman has been finding what's going on, my inner wisdom as the moral authority, Mm -hmm. as opposed to these other voices, both from my parents, but also from, you know, like I was raised in academia too. And so I, you know, I could easily allow those voices to determine my worth or my dignity. Um, So yeah, there's there, that's always a challenge and an opportunity.
0: You ended up in a recovery community, and I, I, I think I can say that it opened your mind to rethinking your assumptions about your faith practices. With the with the caveat that that is an ongoing process. I, I was <laughs> hoping that you'd read the declarations that developed out of you know your reimagining of your relationship with your spirituality, but but I thought. You might tell us a little bit about how you came to these, these specific declarations before we hear them. How did they come together?
1: So one of the things that's interesting about me is that my relationship to food and my body was like the thorn in my flesh. It was the one thing I could not beat. And most of my life, if I put my mind to it, And I resource myself, I'll achieve it. And then, you know, my resume reflects that and, you know, et cetera. And so one of the things that really brought me to my knees, to use a turn of phrase, um, was this issue with, with food and Mm -hmm. this in my body. I could not solve it on my own. 30 years of trying. I could not solve it. And so when I finally ended up in a recovery community, um, the invitation in this community, as well as many recovery communities is you got to turn this over to a power greater than yourself. Your life is unmanageable. You can't do this. And I finally got to a point where I was like, it's true. I can't fix this on my own. But then that invited the question, well, who do I turn this over to? And that really <laughs> shine, you know, th- that, that put a, ho- a huge spotlight on my perception of God. And I was like, I don't trust this God that I've inherited. And with this sacred need that I have, that's huge in my life, and frankly, ruining my life, I have to find a power greater than myself that I can actually relinquish this to, that I can surrender this to. It's almost like I had permission. <laughs> and I talked to people in, the, you know, in this recovery group that are like, oh, I'm an atheist, and this is my power. Yeah, you know, I'm a mm. Muslim and this is my power, you know. So, at the time I was in these divinity school communities and you know, Duke Divinity School is really Christian. It's really Methodist. So, I wasn't even surrounded with a lot of people um as peers who had very faithful connections to a religion that was different than Christianity. And mm. so even just being in this recovery community helped me to see, oh, literally you can make it up.
0: That is a wonderful prelude to your declarations and you know, the kind of the beginning of your reimagining of what, what your higher power would be. So if you'll read them. Mm, absolutely.
1: I am worthy of a higher power who loves my blackness. I cleared my throat and repeated myself because I was trying to convince myself of this truth. I am worthy of a higher power who loves my blackness. The second time's the charm. Now I was on a roll. I am worthy of a higher power who listens to, values, and validates my experiences as a Black woman. I am worthy of a higher power who is fiercely nurturing. I am worthy of a higher power who is engaging and relatable. I am worthy of a higher power who is a giver of joy. I am worthy of a higher power who demands nothing from me yet freely offers every spiritual treasure to me. I am worthy of a higher power who embraces my emotions, no matter how loud they are. I am worthy of a higher power who honors my process, no matter how messy it may seem. I am worthy of a higher power who loves all my body sizes. I am worthy of a higher power who rejoices in my imperfection. With each affirmation, my holy audacity grew, emboldening my declaration of what I demanded in a higher power. The spiritual space around me magically deepened and widened, making more space for me to work, as if it knew that this encounter with my true higher power would have me boldly taking up space in white male God's world. As the space expanded, so did I. And I became even more specific in my demands. I am worthy of a higher power who does not just listen to my experiences as a Black woman. She understands my experiences as a Black woman. I am worthy of a higher power who knows the pain I face on a daily basis as a Black woman. I am worthy of a higher power who stands beside me at the fatal intersection of white supremacy and patriarchy. I am worthy of a higher power who exists in a body that is also scorned by society. I am worthy of a higher power who is
0: a black woman. Christina Cleveland, reading from her new book, God is a Black Woman. She's the founder of the Center for Justice and Renewal and a former professor at Duke's Divinity School. In 2018, you decide to embark on a walking pilgrimage to see some of these Black Madonnas. I just—I have to tell you what a pleasure it was to go online to see the visual images of of these artifacts mm. and these icons. And, mm. and you go to see the Black Madonna of Moulins in France. I think it'd be valuable, Christina, if you would to describe for us what what she looks like and what it is like to regard this work of art.
1: Mm, Yeah. So the Black Madonna of Mulan looks like she's covered in armor. She's about three feet tall, which is actually fairly large for a Black Madonna, but she's enshrined and enthroned in um, these, these pretty significant, massive pillars that kind of have an art deco vibe to them. And she's sitting up on a chair and she's seated in the, in the wisdom position, the wisdom seat position, which basically means she's seated squarely with her feet on the ground, like erect and just facing, just almost facing off against you. And of course she has, um, not of course, but this particular black Madonna has, um, a baby, a a baby Jesus on her, on her knee and she because she's she's wooden but she's covered in a blackish silver paint and so she really looks um she looks like she's covered in armor and she is absolutely magnificent and actually when you um when you walk into the cathedral just outside her chapel there's a a large statue of joan of arc kneeling and praying before this black madonna um because joan of arc was a huge devotee to this particular black madonna and prayed to her before going to battle and so you're kind of you're it's almost like joan of arc is inviting you to to engage the magnificence and the power of this black madonna who looks like she could lead someone into war it's it's interesting and some yeah some of the black madonna's from that time period um you know, look that way because of what was going on with the crusades. Yeah.
0: They're fierce right?
1: They're fierce yeah they're fierce and they're magical and they, they ignited my spiritual imagination for
0: sure. <laughs> what about the expressions on many of these black Madonnas? Mm-hmm. Are they you know what we would think of as tranquil and saintly or do you see you know in that expression some of what you've described about the rest of the portrayal of this madonna
1: it really depends on the madonna on the black madonna they're they're all different some of them have a smirk on their face uh, one of them has a side eye she's literally side eyeing the priest who's also <laughs> in her in her statue um, mm. some of them have like a, a look of fierce defiance and some of them mm. look have kind of like a more maternal like soft softer glance um, the black madonna of mulan looks pretty fierce she's, she's looking at you straight on her head isn't tilted she's not looking down at all and it, and she she certainly and me and I probably and I believe in Joan of Arc as well really invite invites us into standing in our power she looks like she is standing in her power like nothing could knock her off her altar not ideas not war nothing can knock her off and Um, yeah, so, but it really just depends. That's what's so beautiful about the fact that there are at least 450 around the world is they each have a story and they each have a vibe.
0: (laughs) So you ask a question or you raise a question in the book that I'm sure listeners are asking themselves, which is, are they really meant to represent black people? I mean, are they, I think you ask, is she black though? That's how you put it, but is she black though? Right? Yeah. Right. right. What's what's the answer that you came to? How much does it matter? The answer
1: that I came to is she's black if I say she's black, (laughs) because as I connected with the Black Madonnas, I was able to stand. I was able to learn to stand in my power too, and everything I had been taught about this is what you should believe. This is the way you need to act. This is. These are the questions you're allowed to ask. These are the ones you're not allowed to ask. That fell away as I, as I engaged my own mystical, spiritual, and moral authority. And so as long as I'm able to make a connection with the Black Madonna and find myself in her, find my sacred Blackness and my sacred femininity in her, and that empowers me to then go out and move in this world in a more loving and expansive way then it really doesn't matter what the person what the artists thought when they made this particular black madonna in 18 in you know you know 1641 or whatever she was made mm-hmm. and so i think one of the things i love about the black madonna and, it, and specifically my experience with her is that she confers the moral authority back onto us unlike this white male god figure who runs America, she wants to give us our own our own authority.
0: You know, it, it sounds like your father was pretty uncomfortable with your connection to the sacred black feminine. I, I wondered if in closing you'll relate the conversation that you had with him where you told him, you really could never go back to that original kind of relationship that you'd had with him. Mm -hmm. You've moved, you've had to move beyond that.
1: Sure. Sure. You know, um, my dad and I, um, have always, had always done everything together and he had always been a pretty significant spiritual leader in my life. And, um, in the, in the community that I grew up in, spiritual leadership was spiritual authority. And so you, you had authority over the people that you were claiming to lead and they were required to obey you. And so for me to go on my own journey, my own bushwhacking journey, um, felt like disobedience to him. And I think a lot of his, his desire to control me again came from that place of fear. He didn't want me to, um go down that slippery slope and for him you know my salvation was on the line because of his theology and he didn't want his daughter to go to, to go to hell um and so when i as i as i veered down this path it was it was definitely a challenge to hit the hierarchy in our relationship the very clear hierarchy that i had even as, some, as a mid-30 as someone who's in her mid-30s and so i you know eventually had to claim my power, kind of like the black Madonna of Mulan and say, you know, I'm not going to go back to that prison. I called it a prison in the conversation. I'm not going to go back to the prison of obeying everything that you, that you decree. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not going to go back to the prison of meeting all your needs, you know, making you feel good. Cause I understood this was extremely scary for him too. Um, and that was really, really important for me on my journey towards God as a black woman, because I needed to let go of some of this extremely patriarchal, um, some of these, this patriarchal thinking and also relationship styles that I, that I had just grown accustomed to in my life. And that was mirrored all over. I mean, I, I share in the, in the book, this real conversation with my, um, my father, but I had similar ones with deans, you know, and I had similar mm-hmm. ones with friends and mentors and just realizing so many of my relationships are hierarchical. And I, I thought that was faithful, but really it was disconnecting me from my own sacredness. Not easy conversations to have.
0: <laughs> I bet. Christina Cleveland's book is called God is a Black Woman. Christina, thank you. Thank you very much for the discussion. Thank you for having me
1: on, and I'm just excited to share my book with everyone. Thank you.